Stingbats and social reprobates. This is Reverend Norm welcoming you to another electrifying, stimulating, and totally off the wall sensational episode of Killed by Desk. The only show that answers the question that no one's asking. What do those misfit musicians, weirdo artists, and oddball scenester mainstays do to make a living? Prepare to have your minds completely and totally blown for the details you never thought you'd want to know. The ups, the downs, the conference calls gone wrong, the coworker questions, the dress codes, and what they've learned and what they wish they hadn't. And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become. From selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Yo, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. Dave uh, got to finish his dinner. I do. It's, it's, been, it's been brewing, but you know what? This Not episode was worth it. it. Cooking it. Cooking it. I got it. You know what? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a house husband in a lot of ways. It. I thought he was eating No, no, wild, no. Wild I got to add the kale. I thought you were kale. Oh, God. <laughs> I knew I you were going to have a comment. I was at the freaking cinema. I swear to God, man. I went to... They, they, they renovated Cinemart, man. And they put these freaking reclining seats and stuff. So like, instead of 170 seats, like 40 seats in there. And then I went to get popcorn. And this freaking hipster's there. And he's like, you should have different, like, refreshments uh, like kale. <laughs> all right we got steve carp on today who's a a bim designer is that right yes charlie that's right that's what he that's told right. us that's right so it's it's it, it, i think we had a really and good you conversation stole my bim scala bim joke <laughs> i made a every bim time my daughter joke. says i'm taking a bim class i'm like bim scala bim <laughs> was, was bim scala bim the one with kid coconut no, that's, that's New, New York, York citizens. citizens. <laughs> I only liked. Kid Kaufman's uh, gonna put a sieve in your back, man. <laughs> I, only, I only liked uh, what was that? The, the Satanist one, uh, Memphis Scopheles. Memphis Scopheles was my yeah. favorite, actually. So anyway, Not uh, Inspector yeah. Seven. No, <laughs> <laughs> they're fine. Was Bishop Jalapin uh, <laughs> Autodesk certified? Yes. <laughs> But no, anyway, this was great. This yeah. is, it really was. I mean, like his his. I feel like uh, as interesting as his current career is, we talked a lot about his time at Marvel as an intern. That's what we call and the backstory. That was a good backstory, <laughs> and then uh, and then a lot on tattooing too, which I thought was really interesting. We so I mean, use I think less tattooing and more Marvel, in my opinion. I think we got, I think we I think we got everything of substance out of the Marvel conversation, yeah, that but might be true. you know, I but, thought it but, was uh, I thought it was a good, well rounded conversation. Have people draw on paper than skin, though. <laughs> well, I, I think I think Steve had some really sound, just like career advice, um, and I could I could relate to a lot of it. So it's 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 good. I mean, you know, he he has a he has a t shirt. He has a killed by dust t shirt, um, and wow. he was oh, he almost wore it on I the I had one. pot. If we were a video cast, hopefully he wouldn't have worn it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, it's a great, great guy. I've known him for a long time. Cast. That sounds like hell. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be pretty that. every day. It's too, I don't too much pressure. Edit that at all? No. But but yeah, no. So so check check this out. This is a good listen, and it's uh, I don't know. It's just uh, I think it's inspiring to see someone who's like just that that 
theme of fearlessness and being like, you know, I'm just going to go and try this out. And, and it's like, it's a big deal. I'm inspired by someone from Connecticut who's not an asshole. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. I, I, whoa. I don't know what you're talking about. Dave, I, I, Dave, everyone David, everyone I've ever met from Connecticut from was pretty Connecticut, cool. Yeah. Except for, except for those guys that tried to beat me up that time. Why'd they beat you up? Because uh, I... I Wrote about how always um, writing about something. Yeah, just you know, it's it was it was a mis miscommunication. Didn't your mama tell you not to write? Get yourself in trouble. She should have. Yes. (laughs) All right. With that, let's roll the tape. Who are you, and what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm Steve Carp, and I am uh, I'm described as a BIM coordinator for an electrical construction engineering firm. And we provide BIM services for a bunch of electrical, large electrical contractors that are kind of in our, in our family, our, our um, professional family. That's the Korean food you cook at the table? Yeah. Let me flip an egg into your shirt pocket. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's Benihana where I went on a first date. Sorry. <laughs> No, BIM stands for uh, Building Information Modeling, and um, it's um, kind of the next logical and and, um, technological evolution of traditional kind of drafting for construction projects. Like if you remember back watching Brady Bunch and Mike Brady would have like a drafting table at his house and there would always be these set of uh, drawings he was supposedly working on. Um, you know, that's kind of traditional idea of like how drawings get done for a construction project. And then, um, over the years, computers have come into play and, um, then it was CAD, it was computer rated drafting. And now with that computers are faster and, and stuff like that, we have building information modeling. And, um, the whole point with that was, do you guys want the elevator speech on that one? Yeah, this is great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right, cool. So building information modeling. uh, I don't know how much you guys know about typical construction projects. I know we had Spag on and he's kind of like ancillary to kind of the process that I'm in. Uh, Construction projects generate a ridiculous amount of paperwork, just just like a, a huge amount of paperwork. Um, drawings, specifications, cut sheets, tear sheets, um, just memos, notes, memorandum, meeting notes, just huge amounts of information. So what the building information model seeks to do is to just try to capture as much of that stuff in a digital model of the construction project. And then different people can leverage that data and share it out um, in different platforms and different circumstances and um basically the idea is to just kind of have one repository for just just tons of data about this construction project so this and, is so yeah. question real quick on this so yeah. is yeah, this man. all back end stuff like so so i work with um you know, i've worked with hotels that are being mm-hmm. built and they do a lot of like they'll do renderings of what the rooms will look like and yep. all is that a different set of software or can 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 this do that can what you do do that as well it's probably the same software that we use because the, the software get get utilized in a lot of different ways. Um, yes, it can definitely make super pretty pictures that will sell, that will get people to like open their wallets and say, yeah, I will fund that. Um, we tend to use it um, 
for a much more pragmatic and boring way just to see if my like for instance if electrical conduit is going to run into a huge um supply air duct like i said not glamorous but you know that's the end of it so what you were looking at is um you were looking at the design side of the construction world i'm on i'm over now on the the contracting side and if you could imagine like two realms of uh, reality and they kind of intersect in the middle one realm would be the design realm and that's where you know that's where mike brady would be in um you know kind of in a a velour v-neck and zipping down the highway in a convertible you know yeah and and the other realm is like the knuckle dragging dirty contractors um and uh, everybody's kind of using the same software and stuff to to achieve the same kind of goals. And um, yeah. Uh, so so wait wait a second. Yes. So there's a sign, the design side, mm-hmm. right? The, the Mike yeah. Brady side yep. and is like, side. let's make it look cool. Yep. Let's right. But then there's yep. your side is like, let's make sure it actually works. Let's make sure this our, door opens right. right. <laughs> this, well, like this goes into is, the stairwell. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and so, then you have to like fight with the Mike Brady's and be like, no, you can't make this factory constantly. look like a lipstick or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what it is is it, it's it's um, you know, the design side is is especially for the architect it, is all about aesthetics, and obviously they want to make stuff look beautiful. They want to win design awards. And on the contracting side, we just want to make sure that the toilets flush, the lights turn on, and that when you slam the door, the all the windows don't just implode. I like I said, very unglamorous stuff compared <laughs> to Mike Brady. But, wait, wait, wait. That's, can, yes. can, so that's the software you use. Can you run tests? Can you say like, okay, you know, let's see what happens when Charlie goes in there, puts a penny in the fuse? As a matter, yeah, we can. <laughs> as, as a matter of fact. Um, and um, it's done on the design side because the design side, they have a team of people that and the architect is the hub. Generally, the architect is not going to design like the um, the lighting system and the power and the toilets and the sinks and the air and the HVAC system. Generally, they farm that out to another consultant, again, who's a design consultant. And they're, char- they're sort of creating an idea that's very... Um, kind of pie in the sky. And then it's up to the actual contractor, to the contracting team to, to take those really kind of um, rough ideas and turn them into a reality. And it's almost like the project has to get redesigned a lot of times once it gets into the hands of the contractors. And uh, that's where we come in is that we, again, have to sort of rebuild these building models and um, into workable models as opposed to models that are like, oh, that's pretty. We're going to give you a design award for having the most pretty entrance. So as far as that, like when it goes out in the field, mm-hmm. right, you have this you have this drawing basically. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And is there kind of like a push and pull where like the contractor installs it and then you guys come in and make sure it looks right? Are they using your drawing as part of the install? Yeah, so I actually the I actually work for a contracting company. So I'm actually the push and pull would be against the design team, and the design team has an electrical uh, and an HVAC and a plumbing and fire protection designer in their wheelhouse. Sometimes they're actually in in the house, the same house as the architect, 
um, but generally they're not. So what we end up inheriting is the architectural plans plus the electrical uh, engineers plans. And being that we're in the contracting team, I have to prepare documents that are going to get approved by the design team and usually a construction manager with the end goal being I'm preparing stuff for my fabricators and my field guys to actually build and install. So yes, there's a lot of push pull because when the uh, the design team, they deal with like generalities and vagueties. We deal with like actual nuts and bolts, like down to the how many nuts and bolts are on the job. And so we run into something and then we have to fire a question off and say, hey, you know, the design you guys gave us, it, 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 you didn't answer question A or question B. How do, how do you want us to resolve this? Or we say, hey, we're out in the field. We're looking at your drawings and you guys are 12 feet off. What's going on? How do you want us to proceed? So there's a real formal process for asking. You can't just pick up the phone and be like, hey, ding dong, you didn't leave us enough circuits in this panel, <laughs> which is, you know, obviously, it, you know, being from punk rock is exactly what you would do. You'd walk up to somebody and say, hey, ding dong, you sold me a medium shirt. I wanted an extra large. Um, <laughs> so so, wait, there, so there's, a, yeah. there's, a, there's a piece of the software that's like, hey, ding dong. Yeah, it's me. At, at, <laughs> wouldn't, the is, software, wouldn't the software be more like uh, don't buy the Gildan shirts, buy like the, the nicer ones because this, these shits are going to shrink horribly and, and no one's going to want them? Oh, yeah. If if I had the merch software that, that said that, it, it would probably say go find the cheapest shirts you can. Use the worst ink because like, you're on tour like, and you're never going to see these dummies again. It's like uh, irritated nipples here. Irritated nipples. Yeah, exactly. You might want to think about this. There's a, yeah. There's a yeah, bunch yeah. of kids in Boise, Idaho that fucking hate you. Yeah, because they wore their shirt once and now it's soaked into their skin. And I, I, at that point, I'd blame the software. <laughs> Talk to Autodesk, man. I don't know what to tell you. So you How many use of those shirts Autodesk? I have where I washed once? You use Autodesk? What is it, like Revit or something? Yeah, yeah, Charlie. Exactly. We use we use a bunch of Autodesk products. We use um, – and I don't work for them, so I'm not going to get no. a dime from those fuckers. But, uh, <laughs> they'll they'll use, charge um, you to get certified, though. <laughs> they're going to charge me for even saying their name, so you guys might want to edit their thing out. I'm not advertising for those. Brought to you so by that. Autodesk. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Um, Killed by I, desk yeah. gets a commission for anybody gets certified. Killed by Autodesk. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I use Revit and I use another software called Noviceworks, which is um, it, which is a th it's kind of a Rosetta Stone for all the different 3D softwares that are out there, so that they can all talk to each other and you can build one building model. Say the the architect works in some product from some you know some open source software and then i'm working in revit and then you get the hvac contractors working in 3d autocad what navisworks does is it takes all those 3d softwares and builds a building model and um it'll, it's basically like a universal translator for from star trek it's oh, all cool. these different languages come oh, you together. don't have to hold that little thing though uh well, I do, but oh, I, I promise to stop it's when I need glasses. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it's it's because what we're doing is we're working in 3D and trying to trying to get a building model that uh, where all the different trades can exist, and then um, we generate drawings from that 
get them out to our field guys with the idea being that when they go out to the field and they install, um, say, a, a large junction box, that they know that it's at the right height that a whole bunch of sprinkler pipes are not going to go running through it. Are, are they still printing those things out or is it, is it cool where they can just like point their phone at it and it's like, oh, that's, the, that's exactly right. Who can look that at is actually, on a phone? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, actually a little of both. There are, there is a brand new emerging technology with the kind of, um, with the goggles that you put on and it's talking to the 3D model. That's kind of new and it's also kind of dangerous. I saw you that know? one, yeah. You don't, yeah, you don't want to walk around a building site with a lot of open floor and you're wearing 3D <laughs> goggles trying to spot, you know, make sure that you got all the fire alarms. I'm going to show you. I saw that at, uh, when uh, my daughter was visiting uh, uh, NYU Polytech now, Tandon okay. Engineering. They had a 3D model with the goggles and you put the goggles on and the whole mm-hmm. thing would look like what it looked like when it's done. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, it really, to answer, to answer your question, initial question, uh, it depends on who you're working with on our team. Like some people are old school and they, um, will only want to have paper prints, you know, 36 by 48 prints of the shop drawings to work from other people will have a tablet and they'll be looking at the, the shop drawings on the tablet. Yeah, but then you um, got to keep going left and right and up and down and everything, right? Yeah, yeah, you do. Some people do and don't mind that. And other other times, there's going to be laptops out in the field or you know in in the contractor trailer. There's going to be probably you know a really decent kind of IT setup where they're going to be getting our our models directly out to them to look at. But usually, the guys in the field want prints um, because I mean. It's, I mean, it's cheaper to spill a spill your coffee on a but print than it is on a laptop. Then you can draw on it with red and green penciling. Yeah, which is good because we end up doing as builts um, from those. Because what's going to happen is is we'll do we'll do we'll do drawings, and the guy in the field might might be like, I don't have any faith in those nerds back at the office. I'm going to do it the way I think, and it works. And but we uh, we're obligated to document the design. And that's called an as-built of what was actually but, but, installed. But you, you never get those as-builts delivered, do you? I actually I do. When 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 how as-builts many are years part of the after contract, the project is done? <laughs> you know, I'm in proximity where sometimes a guy I'm working for will drop him off the next day, but only because somebody's yelling at him to do it. Otherwise, he'd be like, "Yeah, these are getting tossed out." <laughs> Wait, hold on. You're in Connecticut. I wonder, Charlie, I if some, if the experience with the New York. BIM designer is different. You know, I've seen people's <laughs> as-built drawings, like the whole freaking system's in, installed, and the as-built mm-hmm. drawings ain't done five years later. And the <laughs> customer's screaming, well, like, here's where's my, my here, freaking as-built? Here's my <laughs> question. Like, yeah. so, so, you know, being from New York but now living in Kentucky, I see um, a, another level of this building stuff go on with the Amish where they come in and they'll build like a barn or an entire they fucking house no in like a day. Plan. Exactly. They don't need <laughs> any of that shit. So I'm wondering yeah. how much of this is just like technology for technology's sake versus like just hiring a bunch of, like, I feel like you could ship the Amish in and be like, build this high rise. And those fuckers would do it in like two days. Well, they have that thing, Dave, they have the simple, simple lifestyle BIM system they can use. <laughs> <laughs> it's made out of corn cobs. It's like, yeah. It's an abacus. Um, and, and a lot of praying. Um, 
Well, you know, the thing is, is that the Amish don't, as far as I know, you guys can correct me. Um, they don't have HVAC in their buildings. I don't know if they have indoor plumbing or electrical or low voltage systems or anything like that. I mean, they, they have beautiful barns and I'm, they're they cobblers. Delicious. For the fathers. <laughs> oh, <laughs> they got those, you know, the office chairs, they go to like uh, yard sales and stuff and buy office chairs. I could use those because my back is killing. And the, fa- um, the father sits on that, but everybody else sits on the wooden chair. I always heard a rumor. I always heard a rumor that there was a bunch of of Long Island bands back in the day that found this this Amish community in Pennsylvania, and they would go play hardcore shows there, and it was fucking crazy because they were all like on Rumspringa, so they would go nuts. Yeah. Did that's did cool. Steve? Did you ever play uh, Amish community in Pennsylvania? Let me think. We played Pennsylvania a few times. Um, no, because did you get it was a, by the KKK. Uh, no, but they did take and my you didn't baby play away. Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> no, we did. We did play Pennsylvania, but we played under the radar. We played at a bowling alley that had an awesome arcade and we played one of Weston's first shows. And we were actually expecting like, cause we had heard from everybody like underdog and everybody's like, Oh, you go, you go to Pennsylvania and it's, it's like, you know, more Nazis than Munich in 1933. And, um, <laughs> And it was like the show was really packed, but it was all just like really nice kids. And we got out and we're like, oh, and then we found out like, well, nobody publicized the show. So, I mean, I I would love to play an Amish place if they just played, a, if they paid us in like pastry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, we'll a little keep it shoe like fly that. pie, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Right, let's, let's go back a little bit. Cause, yeah. Uh, so as far as I understand, like, up beside is a college band. You guys met in college. Like yeah, at, at an arts at an art school, and you know, you, Pratt is an art, engineering, architectural, and you know, art and, and design uh, college. So yeah, we met there, kind of like the Clash, and like but all you the were, you were all in Pratt. His... What's that? The Clash <laughs> went to Pratt. Yes. <laughs> Little known fact. Something every day. <laughs> but you, you weren't all in the same I know, program. I know Jan though, right? from SFA went to Pratt. Yeah, he was a he was about three thousand years ahead of us. Yeah. <laughs> or at least he looked like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he actually, you know, he lived around the corner from from there. Actually, I saw SFA played at one of the Pratt teachers. Pratt had had teacher housing on campus, and SFA played a show in one of the teachers' um, front rooms. It was awesome. I think it was one of Mike Bullshit's <laughs> last shows. And um, yeah, actually, Billy. Um, was going to architecture school and Jan had graduated, uh, um, early Many on. years before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. With like Michelangelo or something. And, uh, <laughs> Joe, Joe and Jesse were a couple of years ahead of me. And I came in on the computer graphics program. One of the first people for that. And I think Joe and Jesse were like printmaking and, and, and painting respectively. They were fine arts. And I went in for computer graphics, but luckily Pratt made me take some like kind of architecture classes and, and, um, some engineering and design stuff. So, you know, when the actual kind of commercial art thing, when you realized, you know, that the world does not need another half-assed wannabe comic book artist, but I, it does need drafting people. So, um, I was kind of already pre-positioned to sort of make that, to make that, um, slide over, which wasn't too painful because I had learned like one of the early, early, like 
1989 or 90, like AutoCAD was really new and um, it was still super DOS based. And I learned it early on. And at the time I was like, what am I going to learn this, this, you know, this hokey stuff for? Cause I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a comic book artist, but I was glad that I did. Cause then when it came time a bunch of years later to relearn AutoCAD, I was like, oh, okay. I still remember some of this stuff from Pratt. So, so I, I mean, I met you at an SFA show in Long mm-hmm. Island actually. And I think oh, okay. I bought, you guys had the best t-shirts. I think I bought a Yuppie side t-shirt before I even heard your demo. Excellent. Because <laughs> you had a one-up with that printmaking and everything. Yeah, like, as a matter of fact, you know, the first runs of shirts we did at school, you know, because they had they had just they they had everything. They had this, they had uh the carousels, they had uh one of the most important things was they had drying racks. So you're not like trying hanging up wet shirts all over your house and they're smeared and then a cat walks on it and your mom's yelling <laughs> at you and stuff. Um so we yeah, our, our first couple runs of shirts, because we were all art nerds and we still had access to the Pratt um facilities, they were uh definitely more eye-catching than than the standard shirts at the time. Yeah, I, I should find a picture of that was it was one that looked like Frankenstein or something. It, yeah, it, 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 had it like, took up it, the whole entire front. Yeah, and it was kind of unheard of too because we had like four or five colors on that shirt, but it was all the school's ink, so we didn't give a <laughs> shit. <laughs> it was great. No, it was great. You guys really marketed yourself before anyone even saw you. Yeah, that that, <laughs> and that that worked for us, you know. I mean, because obviously the shirts were way, I mean, way better than the music. So I think people were, I don't know whether they were disappointed or whether they thought, oh, these guys are just an art band or an art school band because you know musically. They're terrible, but wow, look at their shirt. It's five colors. <laughs> if your singer had a British accent, I think that made all the difference. <laughs> Not to match some rock and roll because they said it was fake. <laughs> they said, you know, yep, their, their, their <laughs> review of our. Fake. Yeah. They said, yep, you said run of the mill New York hardcore. The singer has a fake English accent. <laughs> Bill, Bill, I thought that Maxim Rock and Roll got our record and their record mixed up. They said they said that uh, what that we 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 sound exactly like um, Peter and the Test Two Peter and the Test Two Babies. Did they say that Charlie had had a fake Queens accent? <laughs> no, they, I think they even said he had a Cockney accent. Cockney accent, yes. I think they got the records mixed up. That, remember that guy that record distributor, that German guy. There was a couple of them. No, the one he was he was um, you know he hung out of freaking um, reconstruction and stuff. He used to. I think he put a. You talking about Pablo put out the Yuppie Side record? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking. <laughs> oh, he's pa- Greek, actually. He's, he's Greek. Greek. Oh, whatever, German. But he spoke <laughs> But he said he said he thinks that they got the records mixed up. That's what he told me. I, I think it's, it's possible. It's, it's, I mean, the, the the takeaway is that you know Maximum Rock and Roll hated hated New York hardcore anyway. They wouldn't wouldn't have given us a, or you guys a good review even no, if they, we they had gave us, our no, first record a great review. Now they, they? they gave us a good review. It just did you say just, you were from they, Milwaukee they didn't or something? Get, they obviously didn't get it and still liked it. Ah. <laughs> they said our first first record, all styles done with flair. Huh. <laughs> I would put that on a business card. <laughs> you got to admit that that's that's incredible. So, so, so I mean, I, I wanted to get to yes the rejuvenate seven inch cover. Yeah. And I, I'd like to hear the story of that because, I mean, I feel like Tommy Rat had a vision mm-hmm. and you, t- you talked him out of an, a certain automatopoeia during that discussion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I remember, you know, 
him talk, you know, he and I talking about what he wanted with that. And I think, I think he wanted it to be him. You know, he wanted it to look more like him. And I, I think I did it with like, I think at the time he was wearing like a bandana, but kind of babushka style, like, like kind of earlier, like 1984 Vinny Stigma style. And, um, yeah, I think I gave him what he wanted, but I, I tried to, to, to do it in a way that, um, would look, would look decent, uh, many well, years it was down also, the road. It was like, what, what Charlie, what did they say in the review? Which all review? styles, all styles all done stuff. with flair. There you go. Oh, see, I, I didn't do it with a, <laughs> now and not, mine would have said all styles done with flair pens. <laughs> except, that, except that that one though, you know, I, I did that and I was, I was living in Brooklyn at the time and I was interning and I was actually freelancing for Marvel. So I had access to oh, wow. decent, I had access to decent, uh, art equipment and I had a really nice drawing table. So I tried to do, I was trying to do a lot of artwork I was doing for, for New York hardcore stuff. I was trying to do it legitimately like with, um, brush ink and I was using stuff that I was getting from Marvel. So I was using like Crowquil pens and I was doing everything with non-repro pencil first, just because I was, I was kind of in that art school mindset of churning out, um, trying to churn out like kind of camera ready art for comic books or, um, you know, for, for print at the time. So, um, and I was just doing the stuff for free too. Um, like I did some stuff for squatter rot and I, I ended up hanging yeah, around with crazy. Ralphie a lot. Um, but I was doing it the same thing. I was doing it like brush with a uh, brush and ink and, and everything. Cause I had, I was working for Marvel and I really wanted what to would you learn charge their style. Them? Charge. Squatter uh, rot. What, squatter rot. What, if you were going to charge you get, them, what get would a few you get plates of rice and beans, man. Yeah. Well, the reason, the reason <laughs> I, uh, uh, I mean, the reason I did it, the reason I was asked to do it is because I knew Ralphie and he, he knew that I would do stuff quickly and i would do it for like nothing and we had this running joke that like my whole band had this running joke where we all were doing like ralphie imitations and it all it all went like this yo cop i need a i need a flyer i need it in 10 minutes it's gotta have 17 bands we're playing at at the oh whatever lucky 13 lucky 16 yeah we're playing at the f street squat I got, I got worm caucus on there. You know, I'm, I'm obviously my, my, my Ralphie apologies to Ralphie. Cause my Ralphie squatter rot days imitation is terrible, but that was always the thing. Cause whenever I'd see Ralphie, he'd always be like, yo carp, I need a flyer like now or like a cover for his zine or something like that. So at the time I was really just, I was so happy to be a part of the hardcore scene that I was just churning this stuff out for free. Where did the Marvel internship come from though? What what were you, what what was your original, what were you originally set out to do? You wanted to be like that type of illustrator? Well, um, yeah, I got the internship through Pratt for my final year at Pratt. And um, I was doing computer graphics, but I was also really in love with kind of 19, the EC Comics. I was in love with EC Comics. And that was the traditional style of kind of pen and ink and brush inking and black and white and um so that's like, like the original like creep show stuff yeah exactly okay. and also like like a lot of the guys who from mad magazine like um like jack davis um and those guys they got their start at, in the early 50s at at ec and i was in love with that but i was also doing a lot of computer graphics like high kind of high-end stuff too so i did get an internship with marvel um through pratt and i ended up um working for in at their offices. Um, and, um, That's I went Madison to work- Avenue. 
Yeah, yeah, it was like 387 or something. It was really easy to get to, but uh, yeah, we used to be able to walk in. Like when I was in high school, we like went there just to walk in the building and stole that garbage. Yeah, yeah, I, I would. You know what? Then you stole what I threw out because I, no, as I think part I of was my a few years before you, and I was in high school. Because I, I got my, I was interning there. I think 90 into 91, and I, uh, I, I was stealing working. garbage in 81. Oh, <laughs> let's be honest. You were still stealing garbage in 91. Uh, uh, the, the other I'm time I ran into you, Steve, you, I, I yeah. did run into you. I did run into you once in a dumpster. So yeah, at the, at the, uh, let me see at the anthrax. Yeah. <laughs> I, I jumped in the dumpster. I was like, Hey Steve, you're in here too. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was, remember the anthrax was next to a magazine distributor. And the word on the street was like, hey, you know, they're throwing out all kinds of magazines. And, you know, me being a, a horny scumbag, I'm like, well, there's going to be some shut eye in that dumpster. <laughs> and in I go, you know, and I was like, I got 10 whole Doc Martens. I'm what the fuck do I care? What's going to, you know, go ahead, bite me, rat. What do I care? Tons of porno mags with no covers because they, they had to return the <laughs> cover, right? That's right. So there, there, there was comic books in there, too, though. It wasn't there just... was. There was. And there, there was no porno, though. There was none because that's I, I think that was a different distributor. That's because Sex Bomb <laughs> got there first. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, home turf advantage. The dude lived around a corner, so. <laughs> I had to come all the way. Like, I had to come like an hour uh, hour south to get to the anthrax. But, uh, uh, yeah, so I, I got that internship through Marvel. And the guy I worked for, the editor's name was Mike Rockowitz. And he was into hardcore. I remember yeah. that he was he, he had a thing in the back where they had a thing about what like the staff was into and they did a feature on him one time. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's and, cool. And, and it's like he liked and, the Cro-Mags or something. Yeah, and he <laughs> he would go to a lot of shows at Lemoore's um in Brooklyn and and you know he was like really into carnivore and, and like a lot of crossover stuff too and the and the trash metal as as the Germans would call it because and he was into thrash and stuff and so he and I got he and I got along great and I, I was, met my wife at Lamore East did you yeah. <laughs> oh, what a striper show or something Ramon <laughs> oh wasn't wasn't Lamore's East that was the one that was like like the, that was the like glammy the Sundance. metal one that was, was like the like, Sundance Club right it was like makeup metal version of Lamore yeah 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 it yeah cool. okay. it wasn't quite as metal it was little metal but then it was like a little less metal you know what town okay. was that in Charlie in Elmhurst it's not it's now a Chinese oh, okay. supermarket huh Lamore to that kind of thing yeah <laughs> there yeah so this guy took me under his wing um which I was super like that's a once in a lifetime kind of thing and, you know, he just started kind of grooming me to be like a Marvel, you know, person because I didn't know a lot about comics. Like once you get into the comic industry, you see how the sausage is made as opposed to just being a comic fan. And um, so when you start to see the behind the scenes stuff and then somebody starts to really walk you through the process and the personalities that are involved in it and the techniques and the equipment like that's a once in a lifetime kind of thing um and also it was sort of when computers were really were starting to become more and more a part of commercial art especially comics so i was kind of that trying sounds to tra like a bad development um it depends who you ask you know um I, it was a, de a development that I'd you ask couldn't. Jack Kirby. <laughs> I'd ask him too, but I think he's in, you know, he's in Asgard right now. Um, <laughs> I, went, I went to the Jack Kirby Museum. I, I well, I was lucky enough to, you know, being at Marvel, I was able to see some of his stuff was around and you know meet yeah. people that worked with him and stuff. Oh, and that's cool. 
So being a and, and like the guy I was working for, uh, you know, Mike Rockwitz was a you know a Kirby, a Kirby evangelist, and really? you know so, yeah, and 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 he had also loved like a lot of the old timers who were still working for Marvel, and I really took a liking to those guys, and in, you know, started to absorb all the stuff that they were into, and like a lot of the newer comics, like I really couldn't be bothered with because I really liked the old stuff and the old ways that it was done, um. And uh, they screw everything up, don't they? Who's <laughs> computers? No, no, just everybody screws everything up. It was better back when, you know. I, I you know, I, I, I think so, but you know, the damn transistor came in and fucked everything up. Listen, man, I like the transistor. Yeah, I don't care what Charlie did. I, 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 I'm I an was analog guy. Say that. <laughs> Yeah, were there like, was there like a bunch of old guys at Marvel that were like, X Force, what is this bullshit? Like, were they like super angry about like new developments? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what was, what was for the way, the way Marvel worked at the time was that 99% of the, the, the actual artistic talent was not on site. Um, it, what was on site was basically the administrative portion of it. It was all the editors, the assistant editors, um, the admin people. Is that like Jim Shooter or something? Yeah, th that would be an editor. And then like the people that were higher up, they were on the floor above, you know, kind of executive row, I believe was the floor above. But, Is that where um, Stan Lee was? Stan Lee. I don't think he was. I think he was. In, I think he was in Florida at that time. Oh, he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't in the building. What a um, so and, where, and like, where was where was the work actually happening? It was everybody was freelancing. So they everybody was working out of their homes or they had their own studios elsewhere. Um, and the people that were on staff would be, you know, that, that famous Marvel bullpen. It was kind of just like people that worked on staff to do art corrections or um, to take care of like art emergencies and stuff like that. And that was kind of, that was the bullpen. That was a team of people who were doing the work that needed to be, but everything else, like all the writing, I mean, we had people we had writers in England, we had writers all over. So basically everything was happening by mail. Um, a script would get sent out and, and that's what the editors were doing is they were the hub for this whole process. Uh, the script would go out to the penciler. The penciler would send back the finished, we'd send back the penciled boards back to Marvel and then Marvel would have to get those out to the inker. And then those would come back. We'd have to make photocopies of those so that the photocopies could go to the um, colorist and that the boards could go to the printer. So um, Marvel itself was just at that point, it was just kind of like um, kind of like a ma like a mail house, like stuff was coming in and coming out and going here and there. But I mean, it was still cool because you'd get to handle like real live finished artwork um, from like really, really great people. And um, but that's kind of like finding out that the monkeys did, you know, not all bands were like the monkeys. Monkeys. Like you, you assume that like Marvel, like, like I think Charlie just assumed like all the artists are sitting in there, like brainstorming, oh, yeah. like what they're yep. going to do and all that stuff. It just sounds like that wasn't the case at all. No, it, it wasn't. And, and I, I, I had been a comic book fan growing up and I had that idea too, like, oh, you go into Marvel and it's like this great circus of people uh, you know, and just rows and rows of, of drafting desks and people churning out work. And actually it was just people getting boxes of art in the mail and then sending that art out to another person and then just kind of moving it up. That's the way the industry was at that time. I went to um, SPI games and made more games to their studio. And that's how it was, man. We went there, they had like uh, there where they designed the games and, you know, they had us counter where you could buy a factory counter you know you could buy the games there and we went there with a bunch of kids like we like we bought like 10 games with a bunch of kids like hey you guys want a tour and they took us around and they showed us that the freaking hex 
hexagonal map on the wall and they were designing a game. They were all their work. This is going to be like the biggest game ever. And they were like designing it there. And that's how it was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, SP, I remember SPI, they had the, the games that came in the boxes yeah, and, and that plastic they, box, you know, that, yep. that yeah, yeah. And they, they, yeah. they showed us and they showed that like the boxes there and everything. They, they were doing the artwork for all the counters and then the, the instruction yeah. sheets and all that stuff. And like they like yeah. the maps laid out on the walks to work on the game. Like, you know, mm-hmm. so it was like, that's how it was there. Exactly how it was. But they didn't, yeah. they didn't have, they didn't have a, a, a rise and crash before probably. Like, I feel like the the comic book they, industry they went cra- through. They, cra- they crashed after They that. crashed hard, but they crashed hard before Steve got there. I think, I think SPI crashed pretty hard after we took that tour. I think, you know, w- w- when I was working at Marvel, I, it was w- in a transit in a transition phase. Marvel was, had made a comeback based on the X-Men on, on Spider-Man. And I, yeah, Axel X-Men one was about to be re- the Jim Lee one was about to be relaunched, which was going to kind of revitalize. Hey, Marvel X- the new too. X-Men made them, resurgence in, in in the early 80s um yeah because i i actually got to work like i worked for um a printing company that was one of the first companies that was doing the color separations for comic books uh on computer and the book that i worked on was x-men one that that re that when that that re jumpstart of x-men at the same time i was working for doing freelance for marvel um so I was I I had my hand in like the actual comic book like production aspect as well as the the the, the creative portion of it by doing I was freelancing doing coloring and inking assisting and stuff like that. It was good just to be at Marvel just to learn about that industry and you know learn how the different tools work and how the whole craft works. We always joke that after music so like a lot of like punk guys get into garage rock and a lot of like hardcore guys get into like cars and rockabilly. You know, is there is there a pre-music version where like you could tell like the hardcore guys were all into this type of comics when they were kids and the punk guys were all into this and like I, I know like the <laughs> Prog guys were like Silver Surfer and shit. Hardcore punk. (laughs) But there's a difference, you know. I mean, like I feel like you know, I feel like uh, you know, everyone knew that there were certain like like Silver Surfer was always like the prog rock Steve Vai bullshit. But like I feel like there was. (laughs) <laughs> there were definitely like there had to be like comics that were more geared towards guys that got into hardcore and comics that were more geared towards guys that got into like you know became like uh gutter punks or whatever. I'd say if you were if you were really into New York hardcore and you were true to Marvel, which was you know obviously was a New York company, uh, then you would be into Sergeant Fury. Um, but also DC is, it was in New York right down. It wasn't very far from, from Marvel. And I actually interviewed at DC too. Mike tried to get me a job at, at DC. Um, they had Sergeant rock. So I feel like the war comics were going to be like, if you were like, you know, if, if victim in pain was your album of albums <laughs> and you were going to be well into Sergeant and, and it, and you know, I'm guilty of of all these things that I'm speaking of, and so I, you know, you'd be well into Sergeant, you know, Sergeant Rock and Sergeant Fury, as well as you know, just learning Vinny Stigma solos. I would totally, I would totally read right now. I would totally read a comic that like that that kind of 
covered the early New York hardcore scene as, you know, maybe like uh, the Cro-Mags and AF were like going out and fighting crime when they weren't playing shows. Like, I feel like there's, I feel like there's a, there's a market there now. That'd be a stretch now. because they were the crime. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, that's not a diss. They, they would be proud to say, hey, like, you know, we, we, we were, we were the troublemakers. That's the cover. That was, but that was the cover for the true crime fighting. You know, there was some, there was some shit going on that no one knew about because, you know, Vinny was taking well, care of it or. It, it'd be oh. more like Watchmen. <laughs> It'd be like Watchmen. It would be like Watchmen, yeah, like the anti-hero. <laughs> but it, what, what would give them away would be the chains around their waist and the construction gloves. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. I'm going to stop the conversation for one second and tell you, if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help out with some gas money to get us the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com. Now let's get back to the show. So, Steve, at some point you became a tattoo artist. When, when did you when did you decide that that was the way to go? Was it when it made it legal or before? <laughs> um, well, you know, the thing is, is that um, when I was working at Marvel um, and it's two things collided at the same time, unfortunately. And I think this is a recurring theme with a lot of your guests is like you're kind of faced with, do I choose my music or do I choose this job? opportunity. And uh, Yuppie Side had just said yes to a three-month European tour. And like right around the same time, Marvel was like, hey, we'd like to hire you on staff. And that's the most rare thing in the world is for them to bring somebody in to the bullpen and have you be on staff. And like, that's an opportunity of a lifetime. And then I thought that, you know, touring Europe was the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, so being the idiot that I am, I chose going on tour and, you know, Marvel's like, well, we can't really hold this position for you. And I got that. So when I got back from, from the European tour, I, um, you know, I was like, well, I love music and I need to do a job that supports this crazy kind of punk rock thing. Like I need to be able to like work 14 hour days for two weeks, then take like a week and a half off to record a seven inch. And then I need to take a month off to go on tour. So I needed to have this like really flexible thing. And like, um, you know, so at that time, like, like what were hardcore kids kind of doing? They always had weird sort of jobs. They're like, Oh, I'm a bike messenger or, Oh, Hey, I'm working in this health food store or, Oh, Hey, I'm selling guns. Or, um, in this case I was like, Oh, tattooing. Cause like Joe, the bass player from Yuppie side had apprenticed at a tattoo shop. And like, I was familiar with tattoos enough. And I was like, well, I'll give that a try. So I moved back to Connecticut initially to work for this graphic design sign painter place. And that job fell through because a guy just like stopped showing up and stopped paying me. And I found out about a tattoo shop in the next town over in Connecticut. And that was really rare. Like tattoo shops in Connecticut were not a thing. But wait, was what were they? Because in New York City, they were illegal until the 90s. So they were. They were very much illegal. In Connecticut at that time, this was this would have been 92. It was quasi legal. It was a gray area. Like it. Like people, depending on what town you're in in Connecticut, people were willing to look the other way as long as you didn't cause like trouble. And also tattooing was so small at that time too. You got to figure like 91, 92, there's not like soccer moms and stuff going there. Like tattoo shops were kind of, I wouldn't say they were dying out, but it was just as hardcore kids were really getting into tattoos and tattooing. That was going to bring that second wave. You know, it was going to be, um, you know, the, like the biker guys and 
those kind of like bare knuckle kind of old timer guys were sort of making room for this new group of like hardcore kid and punk rock kids who were coming into tattooing. And like, I showed up at this shop, tattoo shop, and it was run by like a biker guy. And um, I was like, oh, what are the odds of a tattoo shop being like this next town over? And I just kept pestering the guy. And eventually he took me on as an apprentice with the understanding that, hey, I'm, I'm in this band. I'm going to go on tour. I'm going to do all this stuff. He's like, yeah, cool. No, you know, that's what this this job is, is like super flexible like that. You can be super, you know, you can kind of come and go and do your thing. And so it worked out perfectly for me from that aspect. Plus, you know, it was like a hardcore job to have, you know, it's like, oh, I'm in a hardcore band and I tattoo. So that was like extra scene points. And did you see that as something that you would, you know, at that time were you like, I'm going to make a career out of this for the rest of my, my work career? Or was it something that you were like, I'll do this for a little while while I'm still playing in bands and that stuff? You know, I, 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 if, if, I'm 53. So I think back to like 23 for me, a long range planning at 23 was <laughs> I have a gig that weekend. Do I have enough strings? That was as long range planning as I got. And I, I'm dead serious. I was like, yeah, I didn't think about, I was like, this is a job that I, th- I think could be cool. And it, it's going to, I really wanted to do music, but I knew I wasn't going to make a dime off of it. So I needed to have another job that happened to dovetail nicely with like the kind of whole hardcore thing. Um, so that I was just happy at the moment for that. And that's all that mattered. Cause I mean, if you think about the 23 year old brain, it's a pretty rare 23 year old that is like, Oh, I better start saving for the future. When I'm 43, I'm like, I don't even know if I'm going to live, you know, it's the next week. This is the guy in the dumpster. So that, correct. With, <laughs> and but, you probably uh, didn't I, even get a tetanus shot. So no, 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 I did not get a tetanus <laughs> shot and I didn't get a porno mag either. So, you know, blue balls on top of everything else. Um, but so no, but all I thought about was like, Hey, at the time, this is cool. I, I can do this and the band thing's going to work. And that was as long range planning as I got was I thought, okay, now I have this made for now. If Did you tattoo anyone we would have heard of? Um, I tattooed the guys in my band. I tattooed Joe and Jesse um after a fashion um, trust exercise <laughs> yeah that's 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 tough i mean did you were you were you reticent to do that were you like fuck i mean this could be a problem well you know i was i was just from the fact that that joe and jesse uh were like tattoo connoisseurs like w- w- early on they had access we had access to really good tattooers um and it wasn't just like you know somebody just scratching out something in the alley behind cbs they they were like going to like you know, these being from an art school, these guys were like, um, into tattoos and into tattooing before a lot of people were. So I was nervous from that standpoint that I knew I was up against a lot of the work that these guys already had that was from really good people. And I didn't tattoo them till later on any, you know, till a little bit later on anyway. It's not like, you know, my first couple of weeks in there, they showed up and they're like, Hey, you know what? Time to get my face done. You know, it's time to get that face tat done. <laughs> and I was like, well, guess what? I'm your man. And, you know, but uh, I, I, I worked on like, you know, again, being in the hardcore scene and then people knew that I was a tattooist. I didn't even have to really be good. They're like, well, I want to go to somebody that I know. And then during the tattoo, we have fun, you know, talking and, and we can make jokes. Like when I was tattooing 
square, you know, people that outside the scene, like I couldn't really crack a joke about like, I couldn't do a Jello Biafra imitation because it would go right over these people's heads, you know, like a regular soccer mom. They wouldn't, you know, you know, you're putting a dream catcher on them and, and I could, you know, rip out my very best Jello Biafra imitation. They'd be like, what's wrong with your voice? Are you retarded? <laughs> um, um, whereas if I do that for somebody that's in the hardcore, they'd be like, hey, that's not actually a half bad Jello Biafra voice. Um, so now finish it, up my only the strong survive tattoo. Yeah, yeah. And, and it says only the, only the star wrong. I'm like, ooh, that's why we got to spell check that shit. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's uh, it was like, you know, I had a, I had a pretty good run in it. But then after a fashion, it was it was definitely time to to get out because um, eventually it was a the shop that I was working for. The owner ran into some legal trouble. So me and my the my cousin, we were like, shit, we're going to have to get our own shop now because that shop is no longer viable. So we looked around and we just. You know, I think it was like within the course of a couple months, we found another spot, got it set up and got another shop up and running. And so you're, um, you're a business owner at that point then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I had I luckily I eased into it because I found myself managing the shop because the guy that I was working for was like around less and less and less. And so I was like, well, somebody's got to keep the lights on and keep this place running because like, I got to keep having money coming in so I can lose it in my stupid band. Um, <laughs> so um, I found myself, you know, managing the shop, which wasn't really that big a deal. Cause when you're, you know, when you're in hardcore and you're punk bands, it's like, you just kind of, you just kind of find yourself in these roles and you're like, okay, I guess I'm managing a band now. And you just kind of run with it. Um, and it was kind of that kind of same scenario. I was like, okay, I guess I'm managing a shop now. And then I found myself, oh, I guess I own a shop now. Um, and the thing about that was, is that at that time, I think that was like 95 and tattooing was a little bit more on the radar. And my state at that time was really not into having tattoo shops open, but they couldn't legally keep you out, but they would do whatever they could to make it difficult for you to have a shop. And then they in turn left it up to the individual towns to make it even more difficult for you to have a shop. <laughs> so you had the state and then you had the local town that could both bust your balls. And it, oddly enough, that got old quick. But I mean, we, we persevered. We made it. We, we did make it happen. But it was always under under that pressure of knowing like, man, the town is looking for us to slip up in the littlest way and they want to come down on us as hard as they can. Um, so, you know, it was always trying to be vigilant. It, I guess it's like running a club. You're like, the last thing I need is for some kid to jump off uh, the stage and get a green stick fracture or, you know, uh, to break his leg and have the bone go through the leg. And then the town's down here and he's suing. It's the same thing. You're like, I gotta, you know, I, I gotta keep this place uh, running so that None of the authorities ever have any reason to fuck with us more than they already are. And, um, yeah, so I was able so to how, do that. How, how yeah. old did it get? When did it get too old? <laughs> I would say like, like by like, well, you know, I, I left for a little while to come tattoo in actually in Manhattan. Um, cause Manhattan tattooing legalized in what? 97, 98. Yeah. So I came down in 98. I got my tattoo license. Um, in for the five boroughs and I was tattooing on the Lower East side. And, um, and then I moved back up to, which was cool. It was good to get that experience. And I came back up to Connecticut. And by that time, 
I was like starting to realize like maybe, um, maybe like 99, 2000, I was like realizing that I was kind of over at this time I had been doing the band thing, like just full bore for like 12 years. And I was starting to really get over it. And I was starting to get over tattooing. And I sort of had this, um, this notion that I was like, man, a lot of my friends are, are like getting married and they have houses and they have kids and, and, you know, they have a roof over their head and they have cars that run and things like that. And I'm like, shit. And here I am like paying my rent with cash and like disappearing to go on tour all the while. Like maybe, you know, maybe I'm, you know, it's like an existential crisis that I had as bourgeoisie as that sounds that I was like, maybe I need to get my shit together and, um, you know, sort of get a more, more traditional kind of lifestyle, like become a square more or less. And so I started to <laughs> like look Mike around Brady? for, um, you know, <laughs> I want to say it's a square because the guy had a perm. I didn't go that far. <laughs> not, not, not originally. No, but I mean, that was a lifestyle choice that he made. And I was like, I'm not going to go that That was a lifestyle store that freaking the directors made. <laughs> I don't know. He had, he had a smoking wife. He had a maid. I mean, he had like, he had, he had a nice house. I, yeah. I feel like that's like, that's, that's something to aspire to. No one's yeah. going to give you shit for that. Yeah. He had a nice drafting table in his bedroom. I mean, he probably, yeah. he probably banged on that more than he banged on Carol. Um, <laughs> um but uh, and so I was like, you know, at, at that point, I think I was, um, you know, starting to f- cast around gently for other maybe other stuff that I could do um, to kind of just gently bow out of tattooing and then kind of out of the full time band stuff, because like the band stuff, it had just kind of kind of run its course. So at you, that didn't, point. you didn't cut it all at once. You just kind of like eased out of it. I, I I did I did to some extent yeah I did because what I what happened was is like um I uh let me see oh I went back to I went to community college to start taking AutoCAD courses because I had heard that there was an opening for a drafter at a um an MEP engineering firm and I didn't know anything about that I just knew that like I was like all right I think I can become I think I can brush up on my AutoCAD and come back and switch over to this whole thing and I think what it was was that. I thought that I was kind of had Peter Pan syndrome and I was being a coward by not getting my feet into the quote unquote straight world. Like I didn't work in an office. I didn't have a boss. Like a lot of my friends were always bitching and griping about like, oh, my boss, this and that. And I'm like, ha ha sucker. And then I was like, oh shit, maybe I need to be that sucker because I'm hiding in this world of you know being a tattooist and playing in bands. And I'm getting older and my audience is getting younger. And I started to feel a little bit creepy about that. And um, um, that's, you know, that's for another day. But um, <laughs> so this opportunity came up and actually the gal that I was dating who later became my wife, her dad is an electrical engineer. And he's like, yeah, we have, we have, you know, we have an opening at, at where I, where, where he was working. And he's like, if you brush up on your AutoCAD, I can get you a, a um, you know, I can get you an interview down here. So I was like, all right, you know, I was actually looking to go back to school. Cause I felt like there was parts of my brain that I really wasn't using 
that much. And I really wanted to kind of get back to the academic world a little bit and, and flex my brain in that way, rather than flexing my brain being like, do I know enough German to bail my drummer out of jail? <laughs> like, you know, or, or am I going to have, a, am I going to be able to steal enough merch money to pay for the gas for the van to get to the next town? So it, it, I just kind of wanted to, to, to kind of flex my, my brain in that fashion. And, Different kind um, of problem solving. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, again, I could port over all that kind of punk rock stuff to, you know, that think on your, think fast on your feet and, and everything. But I also was like looking forward to the challenge of being like, what is it like to work in an office? Like, you know, what is that whole culture and that whole dynamic like? Because I was just used to being around hardcore kids and doing hardcore kid stuff and and um, everything like that. And I had no idea basically like how the quote unquote straight world lived. And I was kind of looking forward to the challenge of being like, all right, let me see if I can do this. I've done the hardcore thing. I, 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 I you know, I got this down. Let me go see if I can go exist with these, you know, with these people that had never heard of crucifix. Mm-hmm. As strange as that sounds, <laughs> you know, people so, that are so not going to, yeah. Was it a hard adjustment? It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, I, I, I know that's a non-answer. It wasn't from the standpoint of, you know, like like we play in bands, and I think that gives us the ability to like not be afraid of a lot of scenarios. Like I'm not afraid of a job interview. I'm not afraid. Like I've played naked in, in Prague, like nothing scares me. (laughs) So if I'm going to meet somebody, they're like, aren't you nervous about your job interview? I'm like, I'll take my clothes off. I don't care. Um, (laughs) And it really like, and it's, it's not a case of being like, um, like uh, flippant about it. It's just like, I have confidence from being in bands, like doing meeting people and having to speak other languages and, and, you know, maybe do all kinds of different stuff made me not afraid. So I thought I could handle it, but I didn't really know the nuances of working in, in, in an off. And the company I first started working for was a relatively big company too. So they had sort of a corporate structure in place that I had no, like I ran smack into that corporate bureaucratic wall right away. So I came you in. Did, you didn't read the memo this morning. No, like I didn't even know. I, I, oh, a memo? You know, I tossed it up and threw it over my corner. You know, I'm like, oh, what would Rollins do? Oh, he'd throw it out. Um, you know, what would Roger Moret do? Oh, he would He would. He would punch somebody out. Um, so obviously that mindset is, you know, it was, it was learning how to do the work. Wasn't really that hard. It was learning to navigate that whole. And I think a lot of people take it for granted when you come up through that whole, um, through that whole system. And it was new to me. So being able to do the work. So I'm learning how to do building systems, engineering, the world works, but I'm also learning all the politics and intricacies of working in an office with, with straight people. How long do you think it took to get, to get, decent at it uh at what at being a good at, drafter at being, or no at, no at, the, the 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 soft skills not the not the ah, okay the soft the skills because um, i mean i went through a similar thing and i feel like it took me a good four years yeah <laughs> I, I would say i would say well you know really it took me at least i had to jump around on a couple different jobs it's to really get it because while it's happening you don't realize it and then till later on then you're like Oh, what I should have done is not said fuck you to that guy. <laughs> I should have gone to his manager and politely asked for a meeting with that guy's manager through HR. 
Mm-hmm. That's the puzzle you got to figure out the passive aggressiveness and like the, how to play the game. It's almost like game of Thrones. Like you gotta, you gotta smile while you're telling someone to go fuck themselves without saying it. Well, yeah, it were even worse. You have to, you have to do it in such a roundabout surreptitious ways because you have to do it through quote unquote channels, right? Like if you have a problem with somebody, you, you not only have to tell the right person, but you have to tell the right person in the right way. And what I found was is if I had a problem with somebody, I would have to say it the problem I had with them is that they were costing the company money. If I said, look, I have a problem with this dude because he sleeps on the job, they'd be like, oh yeah, I don't care. But then if I said, hey, I've got a problem with this dude, he's not productive and it's costing you, and I did a job cost on it and it's costing you X amount over <laughs> Y amount of time, they'd be like, we got a problem here. All of a sudden, you know, like on Star Trek, the, the red alert lights would go on. So it was learning that those subtleties and, and nuances that took a little bit of time. Do you feel like in some ways you you actually had an advantage though in, in some cases? I did because I was you know, naively fearless. I was like, yeah, I, I did in some ways because I, I would be the person that would speak up in a meeting when it was expected that nobody would tell the boss his idea was garbage. I would be like, your idea is garbage. And everybody and everybody was thinking it and everybody wanted to say it, but it was not etiquette to say it. Even though the idea was absolutely catastrophic, I would be the one, I'd look around the room, I'd be like, fuck it, your idea is garbage. And I think that came from being hardcore where you're like, hey, I'm just going to speak my mind because that's what we do here. So I think I had an advantage over a lot of my peers in that they were very cowed by the system. And I was naively brash. And you knew your boss wasn't Roger Moret, so. <laughs> no, no, no. Absolutely. I, I wish he was because, you know, then I, then I would want to definitely talk to him about some of the songs on Cause for Alarm. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, you you know, so, but I also knew I, I like, I had to like, the thing was, is like my, my job skills were on point, like my, my productivity and like, I, like I was a very hard worker and I would come in early and I would stay late and do all that. And I knew that gave me a certain amount of latitude to mouth off to an extent. Like I, you you were not costing the company any money. No, no. I was costing them gray hair because I would like (laughs) be a consummate. Like I just wouldn't let stuff slide that other people like were like, it's not worth, you know, it's not worth raising dust about, you know, issue X, Y, or Z. And I'd be like, that's bullshit. We can fix this really easy. We can, it's, it's this, this, and this. And they'd be like, oh, well, you know, good luck. I'll go off on your crusade. (laughs) And that whole, that, that came from, you know, being it, being in punk and hardcore where it's like, oh, uh, if you see a problem, you're like, well, I'm going to fix that problem. They got those Ralphie demands. Like what, you know, what, what, what's going to top that? Exactly. Exactly. You know, actually doing a flyer for the show at the show. (laughs) So, you know, when you do that and also like, you know, when you're when you're in, you know, in Germany and you get jumped by a bunch of Nazis, you're like, well, what's the worst going to happen? Engineers are going to jump me. Oh, hit me with with your slide roll, Dick. (laughs) Did you have did you have, though, like a. You know, was there an identity crisis moment where you were like, because by that point, Yuppie side had broken up, right? So you're, are you playing in bands at all? Or are you like now have this straight job where you're kind of assimilating there? Were you like waking up every morning going, Jesus Christ, am I like a pussy now? Like what's going on? I I would have that occasionally. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that that's like a something that happens to probably a lot of us. Um, I, I was, uh, I think I, I would I was kind of devoting trying to keep my brain occupied with trying to be good at my job and also learn how to fit in 
at that job. But there would be some times too, when I'd be like, oh shit, the old me would have smashed that dude in his mug. And instead I wrote a scathing memo to HR. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, yo, good job, dick. You know, <laughs> you, know you show that guy, you know, I'm like, that's real New York hardcore. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's like writing a letter to Maxim Rock and Roll. I'm like, I'm going to show that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 and I would be, um, but then again, I'd also tell myself too, I'm like, all right, you're not that person anymore. You're in this role. So you got to learn to fight these people using their methodologies. And, and that's not to say like, I had a problem with everyone all the time. It's just like when I saw inefficiencies that would make the job, make everybody's life easier, I'd be like, well, why aren't, why aren't we implementing this right away? You know? Um, and your first instinct as far as problem solving changed a lot between New York hardcore and an office job. It, it, it did. It, well, the instinct was there, but it was my methodology on how to solve it. You know, um, it, I, I, I had to learn. And again, like I said, too, I had to like jump around to a couple other jobs and see how other companies sort of handled their personality crises and, and, and things like that. And um, I think that's good, though, because... There needs to be like cross-pollinization, especially in engineering, because I've seen people that would be working for one company for like 25 years. And it was sad. They'd be like really good at their job. But the minute you threw something different at them, they would completely cave because they were so set in their way that they were no longer, they didn't have the flexibility to handle something that deviated from the one thing that they were awesome at. So I, I was like, well, I'm not going to just be in one company. I, I like, you know, this company is giving me, giving me shit. And like, I was arrogant enough to know that I had developed a skill set that was in need as opposed to being a hardcore guitar player that nobody fucking needs, um, you know, or a half-assed comic book artist that nobody fucking needs. I was like, all right, you know, I have this skill set now that's actually in demand. I can go to other places. I don't have to put up with these people's shit. I can go and put up with some other people's shit and give that a try for a little while. So, so like you, you were like Kid Lynch, just like, I'm going to be in Furious George instead. <laughs> yeah, or, or anybody that's in like a million other bands. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to shop around. You know, SFA's yeah, exactly. selling a lot more records. Exactly. And <laughs> It, it, it pretty much. Yeah. I'm like, I, you know, there, there's a scarcity of drummers in New York hardcore and we'll see who's willing to put up with how much, you know, that, uh, the bad personality to get the good beats, you know, or Not decent many, beats. If it's Jim Haas, I mean, like, switch to a drummer. Uh, you know, I'm not naming names, you know, but, uh, you know, it's like, ha, ha, you know, bad personality, decent I'm, beats. Whatever. I'm not going to have the kid Lynch versus Jim Haas discussion. <laughs> I throw up my hands. I feel, like, I feel like the best the best bet every time is to get the drummer's the one guy that cannot be into hardcore or punk rock and like those are the best guys to have. Like like Matt Longoria was Bill, where like you have that guy that just like kinda he always shows up for practice, he's always happy to be playing, like he doesn't look embarrassing, like he but like he's not exactly like in the scene or whatever, and like you don't have any drama from your drummer, then you're fine. Everyone else can be a fuck up. Yeah, the last thing you need in a punk band is a punk drummer. That's or right. a hardcore drummer. I, I found that, but that like, now the, you're the you're you're kind of like the drummer though in the in the office. Yeah, exa- yeah, right? yeah. Cause I was like I was a kind of a an unknown quantity and a loose cannon. Cause on one hand, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good at my job, but on the other hand, like I'll talk shit to you and not worry about it. 
Whereas is and in in that particular office in that environment, like that's like unheard of, especially to like like to some of my senior people that would make silly demands or something. And I'd be like, no, that that that's silly. We can't do that. And a part of it was knowing I could kind of get away with it because I was I I had made it a point to become really good at my job that these people would like seek me out. And I'm like, hey, if you're gonna seek me out, don't give me shit. I'm here to try to do a good job for you, but let like you know, don't ruin it. In that particular office, I um I was I I kind of created a job for myself because I didn't want to get pigeonholed into this was an office that it was called an MEP engineering firm. And these were this was a design firm that worked with an architect and they would provide the design for the the building's HVAC electrical and plumbing services. Um and um I would work, you know, I would work sometimes with HVAC people to get their designs drawn out, and I would work sometimes with electrical people I'd work sometimes what I what I found in doing all that stuff was that a lot of people were really good engineers but they sucked at AutoCAD so what really was needed and and the reality was is that the softwares were getting more complicated and it didn't make sense to try to force your really good engineers and your really good designers also to be really good at software because then makes you no just, sense well, then you'd have somebody <laughs> that sucked at both well Charlie basically. this is why you run your own company <laughs> no, but I, I do it for customers, you know what I mean? Like they got a system layout plan. I freaking like a draw in the freaking change the network around in like five minutes. And then when I, you know, I was working a customer, I walk upstairs to his freaking drafters and just hand this guy the stuff and just explain it to him for five minutes. And then he would do all that. Yeah, that made that's, a lot more that's... sense. If I started it, it, to draw it, it'd take me like two weeks. Well, the thing is, is let people be good at what they're good at, you know? And and the thing is, is that if you got a really good electrical engineer, he's really good at figuring out the system and specifying equipment and sizing feeders and all that. The last thing he needs to do is then is be like, oh my God, I can't import this PDF into AutoCAD. And then now I got this Excel file that won't link to my other database. I would guarantee be the one- that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, it, it would. And I kind of made a job for myself by being the guy that would problem solve all that stuff. And I was like, I, I was like, I don't That's really want to be. I, I thought so. Thank you. Um, man, I did those something very similar. Those computers don't want to freaking work, man. Yeah, no, I did something no. very similar They're in my career. designed to be so. a pain in the ass. That's yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, f- yeah thank, <laughs> fuck you, Bill Gates. <laughs> So, so I, uh, yes. Yeah. Sorry, Steve. I want to finish your thought there because I want to. I wanted to go back. I wanted to go to um, no, the younger side. Not any PMP right. junction. So with the, with, <laughs> so when you got back into you know when 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 Yuppie side started playing again mm-hmm. and you doing all that, was there a moment too where you were like, "Holy shit, I got soft." Like, was there like you know like were you like these people are animals or were you like no? Was it, were, you no, still I, felt I, like you were going you, home again. I what it was was I like I when I started playing with Yuppie side again, like I was like. I didn't take a moment of it for granted. Like I had been away from it and I had been away from those guys. And I realized that like I missed them so much and I missed playing and I missed actually missed the songs that I was nostalgic and I forgot about all the sucky shit. Um, So, but I was like, you know what? 
I'm still going to appreciate every moment of waiting around for a sound check, or I'm going to appreciate every moment of a broken string on stage. So when I came back into it, I think I had kind of the, the maturity to really appreciate what I was doing. And at that point, I didn't really care about being soft or hard at that point. I was just so appreciative to be playing again. Um, if that answers your question. Did you guys, did you guys practice at Roxy regularly? Yeah, we did. We, we, <laughs> Roxy, Roxy Ronnie speaking. Oh man, I love that place because it was so convenient for me. It was like just jump, you know, one stop and I'm on seven train and boom, I'm, I'm at Roxy. I, I, you, yeah. ever, you ever get Cherry Clan from that vending machine? <laughs> I think I got crabs from the toilet seat. (laughs) (laughs) I I have a question for Charlie. Like, is there a BIM equivalent for microwave stuff? No, I mean, you you, do the same same thing. The same AutoCAD stuff you use as far as that goes, you know, the drawings of the network. But there's there's software for microwave. There's path laws to do microwave calculations, but that's not. But but but, but the, the software does, like, testing. You don't have to, like... Like you can kind of predict, the software, you know, no, what's going to happen in the, before you get it into the field. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's just like okay. the software called Path Loss, which it just does all the calculations on what mm-hmm. that path does, and you can you can grab your freaking. You don't you used to have to back when you used to have to draw a path profile, the Earth profile. You know, take it off a freaking topographical map, and we draw that on graph paper. And now mm-hmm. you can like grab that elevation data and put it right into software and I'll draw you a, a profile of the earth and then you can uh, put all your microwave uh, your what microwave system radios you're using and you'll figure out all your path loss on that and how this wave going to propagate and they'll draw draw you profiles and give you calculations and stuff if I was on a project it was better before and- they had that though because now an idiot, <laughs> idiot can do it, you know? I mean, in like, in like 1986, 87, like my father's like, here, here's the calculations, write a basic program to figure out how to calculate it. We had, we had this stuff like really basic, you know, programs that would calculate stuff. And, <laughs> and then we draw profiles by hand well, and then people would pay you a lot of money because nobody could do it. Right. Couldn't, 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 couldn't those guys do stuff that's even better now though? Well, the way it works for us is if if I was on a project and Charlie was a was the consultant, um, I would get from him what pieces of gear or equipment was going to be in the building I was working on and where he wanted to put them, and um, what like the best uh, layout would be that what his optimal layout would be, and then I would have to go and then make that layout work with the other building systems that were going on, like. Uh, if he had like repeaters or if he had junction boxes or if he had the hard pipe stuff, I would have to fit all that stuff in I got and no make hard it pipe. work. I got wave guide, baby. <laughs> Whoa. I, here's the one. Here's one though, Steve. Would you remind Charlie to not leave it in his trunk? <laughs> I could put a note on the drawing. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I don't think that's going to help. No. <laughs> I, I could model Charlie's trunk for him and then, you know, see how, what would be the see, optimal then, placement. Then I'll be able to find it. Exactly. And, and, and you know, to, to take it further. It's only 200 pounds of wire. Okay. I, I could, I could, using GPS, I could put triple points in and you could find it at any point. You could probably figure out how long is Charlie's shocks are going to last with all that shit in the trunk. Oh, I don't have to be an engineer to tell you that they're already shot. <laughs> well, hold on. What, what I was getting at on the ice, though. <laughs> what what I was getting at though is when yes. you mentioned, you know, you were switching jobs, you're trying different experiences. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to move to like what Charlie just said, would it be that much of a stretch for you? Um, if it was worth it, if it was worth it, and and you and you wanted to do it. 
And I, well, you know, to tell you the truth, I actually kind of did that. And I think it's good because it's like kind of like learning another language. It's like it forces your brain to accept different types of fluency. Like I, I left uh, MEP engineering for a little bit to try out um, architectural um, manufacturing. And it, again, it was the same software at that time. It was AutoCAD, but I had to relearn. I had to learn a different industry. Like I had to learn millwork and casework and how they wanted their drawings presented. So I came, I already came equipped with the skills to make great AutoCAD drawings, but I had to learn about what I was drawing and what I was modeling. So yeah, I could go work for Charlie and I would just need to learn you know, what his drawings needed to show, what they didn't need to show. Like I would need to become familiar to some extent with, um, it would, it would depend too on what he wanted to provide me. Like some people I, I had worked for, they do very, very detailed markups and to the point where they should just submit those markups and have that stuff built. And other people just give you like a couple of quick scribbles and then it's up to you to kind of be like Indiana Jones and try to decipher this muck and turn it into something that is going to be presentable. Um, so it really depends. You're learning different people's communication styles and you're learning what the drawings need to have and not have on them to get the job done. And that's why I think it's important to switch jobs every now and then um, because or at least switch roles within your own company so that you your brain still stays limber and you can switch gears really quickly and do that. Cool. That's I think that's really good advice. I would give that to anybody in you know in any industry but especially people that are that are like that are thinking about getting involved in cuz drafting's a trade. A lot of trade schools have, you know, they have uh, HVAC techs and plumber, plumbing and they have electricians and they also have drafters and like I think drafting is is a, a trade in the same way and I think for a drafter I think it's important to switch industries too. Like I got involved in manufacturing and it it forced me to rethink about how I use used the soft like I was good at AutoCAD for one particular application, one particular industry, but I had to relearn how to use those skills for another industry. And I think it just keeps you keeps your brain limber to be able to do that. Hey, did you ever hang out with Zach Judson? Zach Judson from, from Puzzlehead? Project 19. Oh, uh, I think we played shows with them in Poughkeepsie. But I don't know if just, I spent any amount he, of time he, with him. Maybe at ABC or something. Yeah, I'm just thinking ABC I'm just thinking all the time. Yeah, no, I just thinking he he went to RISD and he okay. kind of had the same background as you as far as like what he learned okay but he got a bootleg copy of soft image and now he makes marvel movies oh wow <laughs> you know what i Pro- should have hung out with for him a more. lot of money <laughs> i should have hung out with him more i hung out with you that's that was my problem <laughs> but now you get to be on this podcast <laughs> yeah fuck you guy and your marvel things Folks, why would it have that dude zach on here we showed him i don't know if, I, I think i don't know uh i don't know i could find out Maybe we can get Zach on here. Hey, it can only go up from me. So, yeah. <laughs> that could be the selling point. Like, Killed hey, man. By drafting how- table. New, new <laughs> spin-off. Exactly. Just a, 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 I, I, I checked that out. Just an AutoCAD-based <laughs> punk rock podcast. Exactly. I'm sure there's enough of them. There, there's got to be some other there's got to be some other people into hardcore and stuff that that you know use Revit and and AutoCAD and stuff. There's 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 probably at least one or two. 
three or four gorillas that know how to use a computer and like hardcore. Right, right. <laughs> Yo, well, well, my daughter is certified in AutoCAD, Revit, and Inventor, and she's taking a BIM class. She has tomorrow Fridays. And on Monday night, we're going to see Gang of Four. Wow. Close. I feel like you got to give her, like, you got to give her victim in pain and see how she reacts to that. I don't that. think she's going to go for that. <laughs> then I'm never going to work you, you with her. You got some competition coming there, Steve. <laughs> no, no. There's no competition. I mean, unless we can dumb her down, no. There's no way we can do that, you know? We can If we can get her, like, the Crumb Suckers demo, and she's like, yeah, I really like this. I'm like, she, right, she, now she, I got a chance. She had AutoCAD and Revit and Inventor certification for high school. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, but she never, she never, yeah, but I, I would say that, that that makes sense because she never slipped off the stage and smashed her head on the floor at CB's. So, I viewed, <laughs> so okay. of course, her brain is still functioning. We'll bring up the disability. <laughs> okay, we got it. <laughs> I don't know how that stage never broke. It always it always bent. It always gave. It just never it never collapsed. Well, it had that, it had that plywood stage. on top. Yo, let it was me tell you the raft, with so the much raft sweat and blood. It's true. They don't build them like that anymore. No. Well, yeah, because it was all reinforced with rat shit. <laughs> <laughs> you'd be surprised at what an amazing structural element that rat turds can be. You, you you'd be surprised how fast you could climb up in the rafters with twenty skinheads are trying to rip your shorts off. <laughs> or if Wesley Willis is trying to headbutt you, which is the only time I was ever up there. Oof. <laughs> Oof. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here and your mom is calling jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at KilledByDesk.com.